Spikes is free and it always will be, which is why we need your help. We don't have a paywall or bonus content for paying customers because we want our arguments for freedom and democracy against misanthropy and identity politics to reach as many people as possible. This is why we ask those of our listeners and readers who can afford to, to chip in. One-off donations are hugely appreciated, but monthly donations are even better. They allow us to plan for the future and to grow. Even £5 a month is a huge help. It's much cheaper than your average magazine subscription, and it ensures that Spiked is free and open to all. To make either a monthly or a one-off donation, just go to spikes-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, on with the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spikes podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week as ever we have Spikes deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Today we'll be talking about Labour's crushing defeat in Hartlepool and the local elections. The Conservatives have made history in Hartlepool this morning. Jill Mortimer, Conservative Party candidate, 15,529. It's early days, but a very encouraging set of results so far. Paul Daniel Williams for the Labour Party, 8,589. We are the party of working people. Can I stop you there? You, you, You appear as though you're not the party of working people. The Conservatives have won a decisive victory over Labour in the Hartlepool by-election. Hartlepool and the local elections more broadly were a key test for Labour leader Keir Starmer. He promised to revive the party's fortunes after their crushing defeat in the 2019 general election when Boris Johnson's Tories took vast chunks out of the old Labour heartlands. But this result shows that the bleeding of Labour's red wall is not finished yet. The Hartlepool constituency in County Durham has been Labour since it was created in 1974, and the Tories have now taken it after 11 years in power with the largest swing towards the governing party in the history of by-elections. The local results are still coming in as we record this, but it's not looking good for Labour councils either. Labour has lost Harlow to the Tories already, while the Tories have gained new majorities in Northumberland, Dudley and Nuneaton and Bedworth. Tom, Hartlepool first. I mean, what are your thoughts? Oh, it's completely historic. I mean, the fact that so many people towards the end, certainly this campaign, saw it as in the bag (laughs) almost, (laughs) really just underlined the historic shifts that we're seeing and that the break for independence of the working classes in places like Hartlepool and elsewhere from the Labour Party that we really saw supercharged by the 2019 election is continuing. And next to the Brexit vote, which is intimately connected with, this is one of the most positive electoral developments in recent memory by a far stretch Mm. because of the fact that the Labour Party, doesn't matter who is leading it, cannot connect with these voters, treats these people with contempt, as we saw over the Brexit period, And the best you could say about them is that they've been taking them for granted. It's been fascinating to see the responses from the left of the party, from the right of the party. Peter Mandelson going on the radio suggesting that they need to learn from the victories of Tony Blair and all the rest of it. And I think the significance of that was interesting because, you know, Peter Mandelson, of all people, once a Hartlepool MP, who famously said that the working classes have nowhere else to go. So I think whilst we're all kind of enjoying the recriminations in the Labour Party to some extent, the ridiculous theories that each of them are making, either to suggest that Keir Starmer's not the problem or that Jeremy Corbyn would have won, despite the (laughs) catastrophe that was the 2019 election. 
it just underlines the point that this is a historic shift. It's a shift of the working classes away from the Labour Party because at best it's taken them for granted and at worst it's begun to treat them with complete contempt. And whilst we can talk about the broader political scene, whilst you know none of us are necessarily enthused by the fact that this very authoritarian Tory party has been handed a bit of a fillip, that in and of itself is a very, very positive development. And it's something that we really should embrace and celebrate, I think. I think that, you know, the recriminations are really important because this is Keir Starmer's party now. This is, you know, him wresting control from from the left. And Labour is doing just as badly, if not worse, under his leadership as it was under the Corbynistas. And it really cannot be emphasised enough that both sides of the party are devastatingly wrong. The Labour Party is not going to be revived by a retreat to this kind of Corbynite social democracy type policy. It's not going to be revived by a return to Blairism either. Neither wing of the party has any real ideas, any idea how to connect with voters, any idea how to inspire voters. And in many ways, as we've outlined previously on spikes, they're kind of two cheeks of the same arse. Both hold the voters in contempt in their different ways. Both, you know, are playing their own role in burying the corpse of the Labour Party. Ella. The question of Hartlepool is really interesting because it's less a kind of stunning win for the Conservatives in terms of them really convincing people to vote for them in their thousands rather than a real failure of the Labour Party. Because if you look at the numbers, I mean, the turnout was relatively low given the sort of importance that was put on that particular by-election. But also, I mean, the Tories went from a sort of 12,000 in, in 2019 up to 15,500. But the Labour Party went from 15,464 down to 8,500, almost halving. So really what happened is that, you know, the Labour Party just basically bled out. And I think that tells you something about the broader picture of what's happening, particularly with the Labour Party's losses, whether they're actually in the red wall or not, they get called these red wall towns and constituencies, which is that people are just, they might not be able to stomach voting for the Conservative Party, but they have just completely lost that cultural link Mm. with Labour. And that's not based on any kind of policy. It doesn't matter how much Keir Starmer goes on about the NHS or wallpaper and and <laughs> Boris Johnson corruption and whatever. It's that real instinct about the Labour Party having this deep-seated disdain for working people. And I mean, you mentioned Mandelson. <laughs> you know, he did the kind of facade dropped on the Today programme this morning when he said, oh yeah, you know, well, people like Boris Johnson and then you get a big dollop of Tory money promised and that heady cocktail is, you know, too much for Labour to, to, to compete with. It's like, you know, calling voters sort of drunkards, <laughs> but, you know, swayed by false promises is really not the way to admit defeat and to do that whole kind of, we are going to learn our lesson that so many of them are coming out and saying this morning. It's just that even in the face of these kind of repeated defeats across the country, the Labour Party still doesn't get that. The lesson it has to learn is that fundamentally at its core, it has never been for the people of Hartlepool. And it cannot be, not just in relation to Brexit, but in relation to all of its politics. So it's it's one of those kind of head-banging moments where those of us who want the Labour Party to crumble are thinking, when are you going to actually realise that the reason you've lost is not because of Corbyn, it's not because of COVID, it's not even because of you know the Conservatives being absolutely fantastic because they haven't been over the last year. Mm. It's about, at your core, you being basically an anti-working class party, not a party of the working people. Tom? Well, I think the Brexit point is something that is worth dwelling on for a second here, Mm. because 
the remarkable arrogance of Keir Starmer putting up not just a Ramona MP in the form of Paul Williams, who was kicked out of his last constituency, which was also a heavy leave seat because he backed a second referendum, but to put him up again in a seat that voted 70% to leave. The fact that he didn't think this would backfire or contribute to that loss is remarkable. And I think it really underlines the really deep distrust and distance that exists between Labour. And it underlines your point about them being two cheeks of the same arse. Because whilst you see the Corbyn Easters and the Starmerites, if you like, tearing lumps out of each other, on the question of Brexit, they are completely Mm. at one. They all back Remain. They all back to second referendum. They all took these voters for granted. They all thought that voters were either duped or xenophobes or somewhere in between. And they're reaping what they sow in this situation. And I think the Brexit thing was fascinating because the argument of Keir Starmer and the people around him and even some of the Corbynistas who were willing to give him a chance was that 2019 may have just been a bit of a blip. It's the combination of a very unpopular Corbyn leadership and Brexit. Take those things out of the equation and things will slowly go back to normal. But not only has the habit of voting Labour been broken, Mm. either because people have moved over to the Tories in Tees Valley, you've got a very popular mayor there who looks like he's going to be re-elected, seem to have helped get the by-election candidate over the line there for the Tories. Other people who voted for the Brexit party, and that becomes a kind of gateway to not voting Labour again. But that fundamental betrayal just proved to these people who suspected for a very long time, felt for a very long time that this was a party that at best tolerated them. It broke that link forever for these people. And the fact that both sides of the party, despite they claim to have all of these differences, we're at one on that question, shows you how deep their crisis is. Yeah, and I think also it's pretty clear that Starmer's Labour Party has not responded to the changes in the Conservative Party at all. They haven't come to terms with the fact that the Tories have changed their offer quite significantly, even in the time that they've been in government, particularly from David Cameron. Theresa May you know, was a kind of transition figure in this sense towards Boris Johnson. I mean, we might think that levelling up and things like that are rhetorically shallow. We might not think that, you know, putting huge sums into the NHS is that significant. But it's pretty clear that with these kinds of policies, the Tories are making a pitch to these old working class voters. But, you know, Labour's response is just to say, same old Tories, they're going to privatise the NHS. You know, they really are not responding to the new moment in any way. And it's because of Brexit and 2019 and to a lesser extent 2017 that the Tory party have to make these offers, that they have to throw money at these areas because the working class voters in those areas made themselves matter Mm. via those votes after a long time of just being explicitly taken for granted by Labour. So it's, it's no wonder that they're responding to that. They've put themselves on the map electorally and they did so by breaking with the Labour Party. Ella? Yeah, I mean, that point that you make about the Conservatives changing is really important, but also because it seems like though this is a, an election happening, not smack bang in the middle, but still in the throes of lockdown and the pandemic and everything we've been dealing with over the last year, there was no recognition by the Labour Party that they would have to make a real effort to distinguish themselves from the Conservatives. Mm. Because as we've talked about on this podcast many, many times, Keir Starmer as a leader of opposition in PMQs and elsewhere has just time and again rolled over when Boris Johnson announces another week of lockdown, another month of lockdown, another ream of restrictions and another series of clampdowns on people's freedoms. There's been no credible discussion about what the Labour Party would do differently, even now moving forward out of lockdown. I mean, I got the leaflet for Sadiq Khan's mayoral pitch 
through the letterbox in the last few weeks. And the top line of his, you know, promo poster was, any vote that isn't for me is a vote for the Tories. It's just that classic, old, boring, tired line of, you know, we're not the Tories, we're the Labour Party. But most people look at that now and see that that just isn't true, that actually the two parties are very similar. You know, the pandemic has forced the Conservatives to do things when it comes to the economy that it would never have dreamed of doing before. And it's left the Labour Party reeling. I mean, John McDonnell said about the Hartlepool election that it was unfair that they sent their candidate in naked without any policies, that it was kind of, you know, a real failing but I mean, <laughs> who's to blame other than the Labour Party for doing that? They've had no real uh, exciting policies for a very long time. Keir Starmer is a policy-like politician. He's mm. all about, you know, posturing, whether it be in front of the St. George flag, trying to kind of get in touch with the patriotism of the people that they, you know, they think that the working class in Hartlepool are so simple that they'll just kind of fall into line if you do a bit of flag waving or falling back on the not the Tory pro the NHS line. It's just the, you know, the kind of dearth of any kind of substantial political mm. position here is really depressing. I think the London race is, is worth touching on a little bit as yeah. well, because they're not really making this argument now, but there was a period in which some people, particularly the Corbynistas, were trying to make a almost a virtue out of the fact that they are now the party of the metropolitan cities, that they're piling up votes and firming up their support bases in places like London and Bristol and elsewhere. And that they use this as an argument to say that they haven't lost the working class because, you know, there's working class people in Hackney and across London, which is true, but also completely misses the fact <laughs> that the Tories have at some points in recent months had a 20 point lead amongst working class voters yeah. nationally. All of this is a dead end electorally for them because as Matt Goodwin and other people have pointed out, they're just piling up votes in places where they don't need them at the moment and losing them in places where they do need them. But also it's a question of who do they actually stand for? Because it's obvious that the dynamism that Labour enjoys in metropolitan centres is not amongst hard up Londoners or anything like mm. this. You look under the bonnet of the polling for the London mayoral race, which we're waiting to see the results for, and you see a significant double digit lead for Sadiq Khan amongst ABC One middle class voters, but a negligible one against working class voters, even in London. Mm. So whilst it's true that the demographics and all the rest of it of a place like London make it much more attractive for Labour, makes it really their heartland now in those metropolitan centres, tactically it's a dead end. And also kind of morally, if you like, it still underlines the fact that the party that calls itself Labour mm. is not drawing its support, its dynamism, its candidates certainly, from that section of society. I think this election has underlined the fact that that is an electoral dead end for them, but also just underlines their kind of existential issues, if you like. One other key area where they've lost the working classes is Scotland. I mean, we don't have the results for the Scottish parliamentary elections yet, but, you know, we know that Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP are going to come out on top. You know, we shouldn't forget that Scotland only 10 years ago was solidly bankably Labour a completely red country. You know, 1997 and 2001, they'd have more than 50 seats or 70 seats, yeah. you know, all Labour. Brown's seat is now belonging to an SNP turned Alba MP. So they really are having serious, serious problems connecting with the working class across the country. Now, obviously, Scotland is different. You know, Scottish politics has gone in a different direction, but Labour is in trouble everywhere is kind of the underlying message. Ella? Well, the thing about the mayoral election in London in particular, I think it, it, it says something about the state of politics because the problem with Sadiq Khan 
was that he always used his position as London mayor not to do things that would benefit Londoners, but to, you know, I think as Tom has written about on Spike before, as a platform to perform his own particular set of, you know, identity politics, kind of wokeism, if you want to call it that, whether it be in relation to sort of green stuff, whether it be his Remainer prejudice of, you know, doing the whole kind of fireworks for the EU or, you know, posturing about making misogyny a hate crime and how much he loves women and how uh, great he is and how pro he is behind me too and all that kind of stuff and being anti-Trump. And when you look at the candidates for the mayoral elections in London, very little of it is about what it is that London and Londoners actually need. And a lot of it is kind of on the level of of kind of culture world politics. So whether it be the candidate that's kind of anti-woke and getting involved in kind of being an anti-Sadiq Khan versus Sadiq Khan being who he is. At the centre of it, there's a kind of real question of not just what are the policies, but what is the kind of material change that these people are offering in a city that really does need some some big ideas and some big material change. And that's kind of, it's like a microcosm for what's happening more broadly. Because if you look at what the Conservatives actually have to offer people, it's very, very thin. It's, you know, as I think, as you said, Fraser, you know, a lot of it is rhetoric, a lot of it is bluster. That's what Boris Johnson is about. But why is it that we are operating at this level of superficiality in politics? And it's because those who are quote unquote progressive, you know, the Labour Party pretending to be so or anyone else, don't have anything to offer in the means of change. Everyone seems very frightened of change. And in the context of a post-pandemic world where we're going to need a serious shakeup to get anything in any way back to normal, that is a really, I think that's a really regressive trend that needs to be addressed. I think just coming back to that question of like, yes, what the Tories are offering, shall we say, on kind of an economic basis, a lot of it seems to be bluster, a lot of it seems to be rhetoric. We wait to see if it actually materialises into something like a coherent let alone transformative program. But at the same time, what they did offer was taking those voters seriously, mm. was saying that their decision to leave the EU was one that was important. And also the values question, which yeah. has come to define our politics more than class has, which is to say that there is a view in the metropolitan centres which believes that a lot of very unimportant things are incredibly important, whether it's statues, whether it's positions on the latest niche culture war discussion, views around freedom of speech, the idea of what it is and isn't okay to think and say. All of this has had a much more kind of subtle effect on all of these questions because people discern rightly that Labour is on the side of thinking that people are ultimately backward, that they have ridiculous views, and they're also incredibly preoccupied with these niche issues at the expense of things that genuinely matter. Mm. They indulge in this virtue signalling constantly, which not only tells people that they're incredibly aloof from the actual kind of material experiences of many people in this country. But also the flip side of all of this kind of woke virtue signaling is the presumption that everyone else out there are just this kind of backward rabble who need to be hectored to. You know, it presumes a level of vice on, on the part mm. of the electorate. People see that. And what's interesting about Keir Starmer and his attempt to kind of chart a kind of middle course on these issues is the fact that it doesn't matter that he's not the one necessarily going out there and saying trans women are women over and over again or taking the knee at every opportunity. I think he probably regrets that photo op that (laughs) some young intern probably talked him into doing at Mm. the height of the Black Lives Matter protests. He is rightfully associated with that side of the question. He's not going to be able to shake that just by some kind of clever triangulating on culture war issues. And that's something which is going to be more and more central and something which is going to further repel working class voters away from Labour and towards the Tory party who, if nothing else, don't indulge in that kind of 
undermining of the electorate, treating them like fools, and fundamentally going back to the Brexit question, took their vote seriously. And that wasn't a blip. That was a huge moment in British politics. Labour lined up on the side of saying your vote doesn't matter. The Tories said we were going to take it seriously. And we're starting to see that that really had a profound impact on a lot of voters. Thank you for listening to the Spiked Podcast. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now.